Happy New Year, Liberty lovers. And before we get into today's interview with a great guest from right here in Los Angeles, I want to tell you about a little something we're doing to start off the new year the right way, because it's not just a new year, it's a new decade, or some claim it's not. Some say it's 2021, but we're just rolling with it because... It's the Roaring Twenties. Once again, remember the Roaring Twenties? Most of you probably don't. But we're going to make this decade, the 2020s, into the Roaring Twenties because we're going to be roaring for liberty. And to celebrate that, we're going to be giving away a brand new t-shirt design, our Lions of Liberty Roaring Twenties new t-shirt, which you can find at our store at lionsofliberty.store. But how do I get one for free, Mark? You might be asking. And if that's the case, well, I am here to provide the answer. And that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride by supporting us on Patreon, which funds this entire show, sends us to the LNC, where we're going to be there doing video interviews, creating a little mini documentary, and will help us grow even bigger and better in not just the year, but the decade ahead. And now for the entire month of January, we'll be showing our appreciation for that support. Anybody who joins our Patreon at the $10 or higher level will receive a free Roaring Twenties Lions of Liberty t-shirt, and anybody who joins at $5 will receive 30% off one of those very same t-shirts that is essentially giving you one at cost. So please do head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Consider supporting the show, and let's start this decade. Let's start the Roaring Twenties with a roar for liberty. This is, this is not a lost cause. You really, really can make a difference. If you care about freedom, if you care about the ability to live your life the way that you want to live your life, then you can make a difference and you can actually push back against this. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, my guest today is making his second appearance on this program. He first appeared almost actually over five years ago, back in episode 64. He recently ran for city council here in Los Angeles. And um, five, about five years ago when he was on the show, he was here discussing his work combating the red light cameras here in Los Angeles, with, of course, no one is a fan of. I'm very pleased to welcome back Jay Bieber. Jay, are you ready to roar? Roar! All right, man. Uh, how's it been? Yeah, we were talking, uh, you know, before the show. It's I think b- both our minds are blown about how long it's been since since you were last on. But it's it's really crazy how time flies. Yeah, it really is. I, I you know, so much so much has happened since we spoke a while back, and I'm happy to be back because awesome. there's just well, so many more things to talk about. Great. Well, one of those things that happened uh, in between then and now is that you ran for city council here in Los Angeles. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about your race, uh, why you decided to run for city council, and what is it like running, not as a libertarian per se, because it is a, a nonpartisan race. Uh, you're not running as a big L in that situation, but you are a libertarian person. So what is it like talking to people out here in Los Angeles uh, You know about, the, I, I assume you're working a lot, you talk a lot about the issues that you focus on, these traffic-related issues, but what is it like, you know, kind of from that perspective, trying to sell yourself as a city councilman here in LA? Well, interestingly enough, I found that the message of liberty really, really relates with, uh, relates to people. It really resonates with them. And I was surprised at how much it related to them and how much it resonated with them because the, the people out there are really they really want something different. They want something other than what we have going on with our entrenched politics. 
And when you start talking to them about their individual freedom, it really, really resonates. And I'm kind of surprised that more politicians, uh, I don't consider myself a politician, but more politicians don't speak to people in those terms, because I think it's very much a winning strategy. What issues in particular did you find yourself able to connect with people on? Well, we had some specific issues here in our district in Los Angeles. I'm in the Northwest San Fernando Valley. So it is more of a conservative leaning district. I wouldn't say it's a conservative district, but compared to most of the rest of Los Angeles, it's more conservative leaning. And people are, they care about their quality of life. That's really what they care about here. And so whether that's homelessness or some of the traffic and transportation issues and policies that are being foisted upon us, and I know we'll get into some of that in a little later, uh, we talked about business and uh, the business climate here in Los Angeles and how much the elected officials are trying as hard as they can to drive small mom and pop businesses out of the state. And it's really something that resonates with people because everybody has a story about how the government isn't either not working for them or how it has made their lives much more difficult. And what was the final result there? Obviously, you didn't make it onto the city council. I didn't introduce you as city councilman, Jay Bieber. So what what was the result? And then I, I kind of want to get your feel of some lessons that you might have learned just from that race and how you might things do things differently if you did perhaps decide to run again. Well, first of all, it was a 15-person race. I came in fourth, which is pretty damn good, pretty considering good. I was outspent four to one by most of the other upper-tier candidates, even people that I bested in the, in the race. Uh, so I was able to do very, very well with a limited amount of resources. And again, I think it's because I speak the truth to people. I speak their language. And I really feel that they're looking for something other than a politician or the status quo. And so I came close. I came in fourth. I came in, uh, but as far as the uh, conservative slash liberal breakdown of the, um, of the field, I came in second as in terms of the more moderate conservative. And then there were two, there was somebody who, who eventually became the city council member who I eventually helped in the runoff to get elected. But as far as the, the lineup of the people who, who came in, you know, first, second, third, and fourth, um, it was, you know, one, one Republican more, more conservative leaning. Again, we're talking California Republicans, not Alabama Republicans. So, so it's mm -hmm. much more libertarian leaning right. Republican. Um, and, um, and then two liberal Democrats, one of which was the staffer to a sitting congressman who only beat me by a, by a very small margin, and then me. So I did very well in terms of the electorate that I was looking to reach out to and who I thought that my message would resonate with. So I was very happy with the result, about as happy as I could be without actually winning. So. Would you consider running again? Do you think that this fourth place finish and the way you're able to build sort of a base of support by, by talking to so many people one-on-one, -on -one, is this something you think you can build on and would give it on a shot to? I think in theory, yes. Uh, there's nothing really to run for right now. City Council here in Los Angeles is a very, very good spot for somebody who is 
a nonpartisan libertarian leaning person because there's no letter next to your name when people are voting. So that's helpful to somebody who doesn't hew to one particular political philosophy. When you get into the statewide races, uh, all of those and, and even you know federal races, those are all partisan races. So people are voting a lot of times because if they don't know who you are, they're going to vote for their particular tribe, their particular party. So a city council race is much more about who you've reached out to and who knows who you are as opposed to um, as opposed to what party do you belong to. So a city council race here in Los Angeles, because it's a nonpartisan race, I think is a really, really good place to, for me, in terms of my political philosophy, to run for office. That doesn't mean I wouldn't run for anything else, but there's nothing to run for in terms of city council right now. So Gotcha, gotcha. So let's move on to some of the work you've been doing out here in LA. And, and when I say some of the work, I mean, you've been doing a, a ton of work on a variety of different uh, issues, all sort of in the same realm, though, all sort of in the, the traffic-related area. So uh, maybe since uh, you're, you know, it's been five years, uh, I will post the link to your, your episode five years ago so people can go back. But maybe just give a little Cliff Notes version of how you first uh, got into the red light issue. I think that was the, th- the first thing you really dug into and sort of how you got where you are uh, focused on all these different traffic issues. The... Background is that I was working in the entertainment industry. We had some downtime, and I saw a report on the news about red light cameras causing more accidents uh, rather than less accidents. And so I started looking into that. I started delving into the data, and I found that a lot of what was going on and being said about the red light cameras wasn't true. That was being promoted by LAPD and uh, by the Department of Transportation here in Los Angeles, and also around the country when people talk about red light cameras. There's a lot of things that people don't know about red light cameras and red light running in general, and we could do an entire podcast just on that. But in a nutshell, I found that you could make streets safer without having red light cameras. You just have to do the engineering properly. And so we got rid of the red light cameras here in Los Angeles by making a good case to both the police commission and the city council. And then, and also, you know, it was a hated program. So that helps. Uh, It helps to be right about the fact that you could improve safety without uh, ticketing people $500 a pop, mostly for rolling right turns, slow rolling right turns. And then what I did after that was I got the state to change its protocol for how we set yellow light times in the state. Previously, it was based on the posted speed limit, and um, that was the that was the scheme under which they were setting the yellow light time. What happened was I was able to convince the state to change the protocol so it was based on what we call the 85th percentile speed of traffic, which is they go out, they do a speed survey, they measure uh, how how fast everybody's driving, and then they take the 85th percentile, that's the speed at which 85% of the people are not exceeding, and we use that for setting speed limits. And so we um, so when you do that, you have a more realistic yellow light time than based on an arbitrary speed limit, which oftentimes is not close to the actual speed that people are traveling on the roadway. So it's a physics question. And so we were able to uh, make that change here in the state. And in places where that change was made, where they were running red light cameras, we found in some cases as much of an 80 or 90% decrease in the number of red light running incidents that was happening at those locations simply because they did the engineering properly. 
Now, when it comes to the red light cameras in L.A., it's I think a lot of people I and I get people asking me about this all the time just because I'm like a libertarian guy and I'm always fighting traffic tickets and that sort of thing. But people do still get red light tickets in some areas. Uh, but I guess I think part of the challenge here is their ability to actually enforce these tickets that are automated from the red light camera. Can you get into that a little bit, how they still do try to sort of intimidate people into paying for these tickets, despite the fact that they really can't fully legally enforce them? Yes, and I want to preface this by saying this is very specific to Los Angeles County. There are a number of red light camera programs in Los Angeles County, such as Culver City, Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, the LA Metro crossing. That's that's uh, Culver City is where my um <clears throat> my friend uh, well let's just call him Clark may have gotten one of those tickets recently. <laughs> yes, well, um, the uh, the the interesting thing is that in LA County, if you don't answer the ticket at all, they will threaten you with um, uh, an additional fine. They will threaten you with the loss of your license. They will threaten you with sending it to a collection agency. And the letters get more and more threatening sounding each time. They, they they begin to sound more and more serious as you get more from what I've heard. <laughs> exactly. And so what people need to know is that, in again, this is very specific to LA County, right. that if you don't answer the ticket, the court will send the ticket to a collection agency, but it does not go on your credit report. So the collection agency has no ability to collect from you or intimidate you in any way as far as forcing you to pay. It does not. The information does not get sent to the DMV, so it does not affect your license or your registration of your vehicle. And so, in effect, you sort of have this thing hanging out there, but there's really no ability for them to force payment to you. There's no. Uh, there's nothing on your license that says there's a, a warrant or you know a bench warrant or anything like that because you didn't show up for court. And the reason is because in Los Angeles County, interestingly enough, they kind of take it a little bit more seriously, the, the fact of whether or not you've promised to appear. When you get pulled over by a police officer and you sign that ticket, you are making a promise to appear. When you get something in the mail, which is a ticket, like a red light camera ticket, then you have made no promise to appear. So they kind of take that seriously, where in other counties they don't. They simply send it to the, um, the DMV and, and they, they try to force you to, uh, to answer your ticket. But here in LA County, uh, they follow the law a little bit as far as the courts are concerned. So do they keep this thing going and just keep sending these letters to people just in the hopes that, you know, by ignorance, most people or a good portion of people will not realize that they can just not respond. They will take the threats seriously because it's, you know, it's from the government, so it must be serious, and then they'll just pay the fine. That's usually I mean that's their that's their their strategy. Because they they're not gonna tell people, hey, you don't have to answer this. By the way, this was all bullshit. So Right, exactly. So so we send you this ticket, but if you don't answer it, nothing happens. Yeah, they're not gonna say that. So what they'll do is they'll send they'll they'll send a they'll send the ticket, then they'll send a letter saying that you didn't respond to the ticket, then they'll send a letter saying that we're gonna add three hundred dollars to the ticket, and then they'll say, We sent the the three hundred dollars to the ticket, we added three hundred dollars to the ticket. Uh, but if you answer this right now, we'll take the three hundred dollars off. And I mean, it's, <laughs> they're really I mean, trying it's, everything it's, here. It's a it's a game. It's a series of things to try to convince people to answer their ticket and to take care of this. And and we should be clear about it. these are five hundred dollar tickets, and oftentimes they're because the engineering hasn't been done properly. And we, I, I think it's really important that the government not entrap people into 
breaking the law and then send them $500 tickets. So while I don't encourage people to break the law and I don't encourage people to ignore their tickets, um, I'm just here to tell people what happens. I'm not an attorney and I'm not giving legal advice, but but I just know from experience and from what the courts have told me as to what the process is. And I think it's important to hold the government accountable that they have to follow the rules first and not entrap people before they then go and try to penalize them with $500 tickets. All right, let's get a little bit into uh, something else you worked on recently, and that was uh, something with the traffic tickets. They were trying to move the status of what a traffic is from an infraction to a civil violation. You were able to put a stop to that. So what is what would actually have been the consequence of that movement, and how were you able to combat it? What happened was the the court system here doesn't like to have to deal with traffic tickets. So they tried to change the traffic tickets from an infraction, which is, which is a, a, a criminal matter, to a civil matter. Now, for those who don't know the difference between criminal and civil in the court, civil is like if you have a beef with somebody and you, you, know, you want somebody to adjudicate, hey, somebody didn't follow a contract or somebody owes me money or whatever, then then you go into the civil realm where you're sort of equal and you have rights, the other party has rights, and they have a, a, a certain standard for how it's adjudicated. In a criminal matter, you're up against the government. So you have more rights, you have more due process rights. There are certain things that kick in, like I'll just give an example. One of them is what we call the standard of proof. So most people know this from watching TV and, and court dramas. The standard of proof in a criminal case is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, it's what's called preponderance of the evidence, which means like more likely than not, 50% plus one. And so when you are up against the government in a civil case, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of resources and they only have to prove in a civil case that maybe it's more likely that you did it or not. You, you, you committed the crime or more likely that the law was followed when they ticketed you. Um, and in a criminal case, there's a higher standard, there's a higher bar that they have to reach. And so that's very important for, for people being able to defend themselves against a very, very powerful government. The other things, for example, are your ability to face your accuser, your ability to um, get discovery, which is, you know, you ask for the data on the red light cameras, you ask for, you know, the, the speed survey, if you got a speeding ticket, things of that nature. And, and, and you wouldn't be able to do any of that if this if it were moved to a civil? If it were moved procedure. to a civil... Um, uh, a civil model, many of these protections would go away. They could they could add them, but they're not immediately required by law. And that's the important thing. So we were able to, not just myself, but others uh, who were challenging this idea, we were able to convince the courts, that's called the Judicial Council, uh, to not move forward with this proposal. That's what we're hearing over the last few days here. We heard that they, it has been a, a two or three year process, but they're not going to move forward because they felt that it was just too much opposition to it. So you can make a difference if you, uh, if you fight back and you let the government know that you're not going to, um, uh, the people are not with them 
on a lot of these things. Hold your horses, kitty cats. I have to jump in here for one second and tell you about another great libertarian podcast. And this one is not your typical podcast. This one doesn't really focus so much on the ideas of liberty, but on music. And who doesn't love music in some form or another? I, I guess some people don't, but who really wants to know those people anyway? Let's be honest. Anyway, the show is aptly titled Sounds Like Liberty. Sounds Like Liberty is hosted by Liberty's favorite nerdy husband, Nick Pacone, and and his wife, Lizzie. They speak to guests every single week to find out who has the best music taste here in Ancapistan. And uh, the Lions of Liberty have actually been on the show, at least a good number of us. Myself, uh, Brian McWilliams, and Howie Snowden have all been on Sounds Like Liberty. We're still waiting for the John Odermatt episode, uh, but uh, we're not actually sure if John listens to music because we already know he doesn't watch movies. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and go on over to ancapmusic.com and check out Sounds Like Liberty or just search Sounds Like Liberty on your favorite podcatcher. That's all I do. I, I stick completely to the podcatchers, but Sounds Like Liberty is an excellent show and really does a great job of merging culture, music, and liberty together. I highly recommend this program. If that wasn't enough, the show is co-hosted by an African-American female ANCAP. I mean, what, what more could you ask for? And by the way, Nick did tell me to say that that in the ads. <laughs> Do check out Sounds Like Liberty. Go to ancapmusic.com right now to learn more. All right, I want to move on to something else. You did actually briefly mention earlier um, you kind of some of your work with with speed limits. You want to dig into something to, to a little bit more about that, and then I want to really move on to something that I'm super passionate about, and that is the road diets. But I think there's something a little bit more that you've done recently with speed limits as well. Yeah, so, um, so most people don't understand how a speed limit is set or why it's set at the, the level that it's set at. Now, what from, from a traffic engineering standpoint, a road is built a certain way. It has a certain width. It has a certain number of lanes. There's a certain amount of development next to the street. So there's either tall buildings or houses or nothing. Um, so all of that um, feeds into the, your perception of speed. And so uh, there's, a, there's a concept called motion parallax, which most people understand this when they fly in an airplane and motion parallax is this idea. Well, it's not an idea. It's, it's a, it's a physical concept where things that are closer to you as you're passing by them appear to be moving faster than things that are further away. So you're on an airplane, you're cruising at 30,000 feet, you're going 600 miles an hour, but it feels like you're barely moving. And that's because things that are passing by the plane are so far away that it, it feels like you're barely moving. When you're taking off and landing, it feels like you're moving much faster, even though you're actually going slower than when you're cruising altitude. So this is the same concept that happens when you're driving a car. So you're on a little narrow street, say your neighborhood street, there's, it's tree-lined, there's cars parked, there's houses. 25 miles an hour on that narrow little street might feel comfortable to you in, in your car. You go out onto a big wide street with three or four lanes in each direction, you've got things are far away, you've got a long straight stretch of roadway so you can see really far in front of you, and your perception of speed is going to be very different there. So you try driving 25 miles an hour on that big wide street, your brain is gonna tell you that you're not driving at, at fast enough, that, that it's very uncomfortable, and you naturally will speed up to get to a point where you feel like you're traveling at a reasonable speed. This is not something that people can control. So it really doesn't matter what number you put on the sign on the side of the roadway in terms of the operational speed, the speed that people naturally drive at on the road. Now, that doesn't mean some people are outliers who will drive much faster than the regular, uh, the average person out there. 
Um, but the, the concept of a speed limit is you go out there, you measure the speed of the roadway, and you, you measure the speed that, let's say, 100 cars are traveling at. You take the 85th highest speed, and you say, well, 85% of the people are traveling at this speed or lower. That's about a reasonable speed because people aren't getting into accidents and they're not causing havoc on the roadway. And so that's normally where you set the speed limit about. There is a movement to allow jurisdictions to change that method and be able to lower speed limits much lower than what the vast majority of people drive at. So what this would do is it won't change the speeds of people are traveling on the road, but what it would do is it makes pretty much everybody on the road a violator. And so that's something that is being pushed not only here in California, but in a lot of places around the country. And it's mostly being pushed by advocates who hate people who drive cars. And so they want everybody to be a violator on the road. And that way we can ticket everybody for simply getting in their car. And they claim it's for safety, but it, it's not for safety. There's a lot of reasons why you don't want a speed limit that's much lower than the operational speed of the road because you get a lot of speed variation then, and that's more dangerous than people going at a higher speed but all traveling about the same speed. And so there was a task force that was put together for the state of California, and I have served on that. The whole thing was a, a big, bogus mess, and we can get into some specifics if you want. But it was completely biased from the very outset as to come out with an outcome that they wanted to come out with, which was, oh, we should allow jurisdictions what they're calling more flexibility to set speed limits. More flexibility means they can lower the speed limit and ticket a lot of people. And then they want to put in speed cameras in order to in order to ticket people because everybody's a violator on the roadway. You can't have enough police officers to ticket everybody. So they want to put in a speed, speed cameras just to ticket everybody that simply goes by this particular uh, spot in the road where they've lowered the speed limit. It's, it's a giant scam. So they want to take this red light model and apply it to just speed everywhere. I mean, that, that's, that's insane. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, as, as you may recall, I mentioned earlier how you set a yellow light. Previously, in the 90s, we set yellow light times based on the 85th percentile. And then there was a change at the national and local levels to allow jurisdictions to set yellow lights based on posted speed limit, which, as I mentioned, are oftentimes politically motivated and they're lower than what most of the people are traveling on the roadway. So you can have a lower yellow light time. And this is what happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that prompted the explosion of red light cameras because all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people were running red lights. Well, now the red light camera companies came in and said, oh, we can solve your problem for all these, these terrible drivers because you've created a situation where you're forcing people to run the red light because you don't have enough of uh, the proper yellow light time. And then they put in these cameras to ticket everybody. This is exactly the same model that they're trying to use here with speed limits. They want to lower speed limits to an unreasonable level and then put in speed cameras to solve the problem of every everybody who's a speeder, which you simply created by changing the standard. And that's it's exactly the same model. I guess that begs the question, at least in Los Angeles County, would the same theory apply if you got one of those uh, speeding camera tickets with the same theory apply to the red light where you aren't facing your accuser? And if they don't, if you don't sign the thing, I mean, hopefully this never happens, first of all. but <laughs> Right. And, and we don't know because... All of this is based on the enabling legislation that, that could happen. Right now, you cannot use speed cameras in the state of California, and we want to keep it that way. 
if there was a change in the law to allow that to happen, then however that law was written would determine the answer to your, your question. So we don't really know. But if it's exactly the same model, then yes. But we don't know what the enabling legislation would say if there was any. Well, one thing you keep running into here, Jay, and I, I think it, it makes sense by something you mentioned here, and that is no matter what like rational options you present about how it makes more sense to set speed this way or that way, you're faced with opposition because you're not facing a rational opposition. You're facing an ideology, and that ideology is very much anti-car. So I want to talk about that broader ideology and how it has led to some uh, – much crazier things, especially one that has really impacted an area that I no longer live quite as close to, but I'm, I still live relatively close and drive through a lot. That is the Venice area, specifically uh, Venice Boulevard, where they took this road that was already really busy, especially on beach days, and they just removed lanes and made these huge parking areas. And But like like you mentioned, this is not just like a, a one-area thing. This is part of a much broader movement um, that is philosophical and that is global in nature of people that are simply anti-car and uh, anti-human movement and so many ways. So can you just dig into that? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you take it from any angle you, you choose. Yeah, it's really an important thing that I don't think people realize is going on right now, that there is a war on cars. And it's a war. It's, and we say war on cars, but it's really actually a war on people. It's a war on your personal movement. They do not want you to be able to get in your car and drive somewhere using your personal automobile. This is the entire philosophy that's driving a lot, no pun intended, a lot of these policies that we're seeing being implemented, like road diets, like these lower speed limits. Um, and I can get into a whole host of them, but there's parking prohibitions. There's um, congestion pricing that they're talking about. They're even talking about, in some places, car-free areas. Um, and, of course, the automated enforcement, all of these sorts of things are are intended to make your ability to drive a car more difficult. Well, and, what entails a car-free area exactly? Well, a car-free area means that they could take a section of the city and they would take the streets over and not allow cars to drive on them. It would be either a pedestrian area or only for bicycles. Or And we've seen this. I think they did this in New York City in Times Square. Um, they eliminated the ability for some of the roads that, that intersect there for people to drive in Times Square. And I know San Francisco wants to do this on Market Street. They want to make Market Street a car-free road. I mean, this is a major roadway going through San Francisco. I never go up there anymore because it's just too, too horrible a place for me to go. But um, but this is something that's happening in many, London has done this many, many, many places. So if they, I mean, their, their goal is if they could charge you for driving in these areas with what they call congestion pricing, then then they can make some money off of it. But their real goal is to not have you drive a car at all. And this is all based on this ideology. It's, it's to some extent tied into the environmental movement where it has to do with pollution. It has to do with global warming uh, because cars, at least um, internal combustion cars, can um, can add to CO2. And if you believe that that's a big problem in the world, then people want to reduce your driving, especially with, with single uh, occupancy vehicles or, or mostly single occupancy vehicles. But really what it's about, and, and it's hard, I don't want to overstate this, but it, it, but it really is a movement to curtail your personal freedom. There, are, there is a movement out there that hates the middle class. It hates people who have achieved a certain amount of success and have the ability to have a car and to 
drive where they want to drive, when they want to drive there, and not have to ask the government for permission to get on a bus or a train and go on that schedule or where that particular vehicle goes. If I want to go to Venice Beach and I want to take a particular route, and maybe I want to stop somewhere, see a friend along the way, whatever, then I have the right to do that. But they don't think I have the right to do that. They don't think you have the right to choose where you go, when you go, in the means of travel that you want to choose. And and it really is, it, it ties into a lot of this socialistic thinking of, well, the government can decide much better how you get around than you can. The government knows how to live your life better than you know how to live your life. And I say this often, uh, it sort of sounds funny, but there are very few things in life that I'm 100% sure of. And one thing I'm 100% sure of is that you know how to live your life better than I know how to live your life. And so, but the people who are in power and would like to be in power would don't think that. They think they know how to live your life better than you do. They think they know what's better for society and they'll do everything they can in order to control you. And the freedom that's afforded by the personal automobile is one of the greatest um, boons to freedom that we have had in the history of mankind. And I mean, think about it. If you, if you want to go somewhere now because you have the ability to drive in your car, compare that to, say, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago when people couldn't get around that or they have very limited in how far they could go. It's yeah. opened up so many opportunities for people to um, live their lives better, to prosper, and they hate that. And that this, is, this is really, I think, a very, very big thing that people should be concerned about, which is there are people that hate the freedom that comes along with your car, with your middle-class lifestyle, whatever. They don't want you to live in single-family homes because that's destroying the planet. But it's really about destroying your freedom. And I think it's really important to understand that. And look, maybe you don't drive a car. Maybe you, you, know, you take transit everywhere. Maybe you ride a bicycle. But let me say this, that this doesn't end. There's no end point for these people in terms of controlling your life. So whether or not you particularly care whether driving freedom is curtailed, they're coming after you next, okay? Your, your freedom, whatever it is that you hold dear, eventually they're going to come after you. And that's an important thing that people have to understand. And I think that many people are waking up to, but I don't think enough yet. Yeah. If it's not your car, it's going to be your food. It's going to be your money. It's going to be your business. It's going to be something one, one way or another. And uh, you know that, that's why we do the show to, to spread awareness about these things on all levels. I do want to dig back into the road diets a little bit more because um, again, I think a lot of people, a lot of times I hear a response to, from people say, well, look, we need these safety lanes for the bikes. I ride my bike a lot too. So I, I'm not going to lie, even though I hate the road diet, ah, sometimes when I'm in those lanes, I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice having all this space. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it is a real safety issue. And I think that's what something we need to focus focus on, especially Venice is in an evacuation area for, um, for, um, tsunamis, I believe. And then also there was recently, there's always fires in these areas. So we're talking about hindering the the movement on the road. It is a true safety issue. So maybe you can dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of evidence, not just from LA, but in other places in the country where they have done these road dives, where they've taken away car lanes, where they have really increased the response time of, emergency response. And this is a very, very dangerous thing. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about, although they may have heard about 
the, the fires in Paradise, California, where I think it was 80 some odd people perished because they couldn't get out of the area where they were living in. Most people don't know this, but through the center of the town of Paradise, they did a road diet previous to this fire. And there was a fire a couple of years prior to that. And there was a report back that said, you need to create better access. You need to create better evacuation routes. And what they did instead, they narrowed the roadway. And instead of having two lanes in each direction through the center of town, they only had one lane in each direction. And the traffic backed up, which is exactly what you can expect. And during an emergency, people couldn't get out and they burned to death. And that's why these policies, although they always like to couch them in, oh, it's, you know, it's for the, you know, it's for the, 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 the vulnerable road users. It's, it's for people to, to live better lives and to be able to be more mobile and, and walk around and make it, you know, walkable communities and all these wonderful things, except in, in, in the, the, um, the other end of, of the spectrum, when you have an emergency and you need to get cars through there and you need to get vehicles through there, you can't do it and people die because of these policies. And, and we saw that in Paradise and we see that in Venice. There's a, um, an organization that I uh, do a lot of work with called Keep LA Moving. It's also a national uh, organization called Keep the US Moving. And on their website, you can access some videos of an emergency vehicle in the Venice area trying to get through that 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 roadway where that you described where they took away car lanes and the emergency vehicles cannot get through because of the additional congestion that they caused there and it's very dangerous there was a guy that was pinned under a truck i think he was a motorcyclist was pinned under a truck and the emergency vehicles took a lot longer to get to him and it's scary i mean if you're having a heart attack if you've been injured in some way you want that emergency vehicle to get there as quickly as possible and um and these policies are dangerous what's the current status of the fight against the road diets is there any effort to overturn uh like lanes that have already been closed and reopen that them back up or on the other hand are, are there are they trying to install this you know and I, I know the answer already i know they are but uh, what what are the efforts to combat their attempts to install this all over the place well, there are efforts to install this all over the place, but we have been successful in pushing back um, in the Mar Vista area, or I'm not exactly sure where it was, along the beach area, they put in a road diet and then they took it out because of opposition. There's still a lot of opposition to the Venice Boulevard road. Yeah, that was the Mar Vista area um, on the um, the Pacific Coast Highway that, that connects like Mar Vista down to Manhattan Beach. Right, exactly. Was there and for I think like three or four weeks and there was a huge outcry because literally traffic just didn't move. Yeah. I, I ended up in it once and then a few weeks later it was gone. So I guess the, at least on some level there is sometimes a response to, to the outcry. Right, and businesses but, are suffering. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, it, it, on Venice Boulevard, I can't quote you the numbers, but um, Keep LA Moving has the numbers. There's a number of businesses when they put in this road diet have gone out of business because people sure. can't get to their business. They don't want to sit in traffic. It is nearly impossible to drive in that area now. I mean, yeah, it's, it's truly it, unbelievable. It, and and they want to, you know, they, they want to do this in other places, you know, here in the uh, San Fernando Valley, they're thinking about redesigning Sepulveda Boulevard, uh, the Northern part of Sepulveda Boulevard in the Mission Hills area. And, and although they won't tell you straight out, part of that is, Hey, we'll take away car lanes because everything that the department of transportation in the city of Los Angeles, and to some extent uh, in the state, all their goal is to make driving as difficult as possible. So if, you, if you're unclear as to what their policies are or are going to be on a particular project, 
understand that they are looking for excuses to make your driving more difficult. So whether it's a road diet or whether it's retiming the traffic lights so you hit more red lights, not less red lights. I mean, I can tell you crazy stories about where, you know, let's talk about traffic sync traffic light synchronization for a moment. You know, most people understand this. You're driving down the road and you want the lights to turn green as you're as you're driving down the road. They're synchronized. So as you get to the next light, it turns green and, and so on and so forth up to, up to a certain limit. And what the city of Los Angeles is doing is they're reversing that. So you actually hit more red lights. If you notice as you're driving around the city of Los Angeles and other cities are doing this too, their goal is to make you stop. They make you your travel across the city take much longer. And the reason is because they want people to be impaired in driving. So maybe that much longer bus ride or train ride, all of a sudden in that comparison, all of a sudden that looks a little better because now it takes you three times as long to get across the city by car. So maybe, oh, well, well that, that's how we'll get you on the, on the bus or how we'll get you on transit. And um, so if, if you're unclear as to what the policies are, just think, how can they make my driving more difficult? That's the policy that they're going <laughs> to Whatever would make things worse. Uh, one more thing that, uh, I want to touch on is just how are, you know, with the advent of automated cars, uh, I'm, I'm just curious if there's any sort of move against that because that is still a car. So is this the anti-car movement trying to fight uh, these automated cars that are, are, are rolling their way out? I know a couple of friends that already have the Teslas that are able to, to drive themselves. Um, is that something that's become a target as well? Yes. Okay. It's interesting. How did I guess? <laughs> well, yes, it, it's interesting because there's a, sort of a duality with this one. Like, for example, they are afraid that automated vehicles will give people more opportunity to get around who people who can't drive. Okay. So there'll be more, uh, there'll be more cars on the road because let's say you're aged or you don't have a driver's license, but you can call for a, um, an automated vehicle to pick you up. They don't like that because, oh, there's more going to be more travel by car. So they don't want travel by car. And the the other thing is that they're concerned that, you know, it's going to add to um, it's going to add to pollution. It's going to add to greenhouse gases. So they want to make all of these vehicles by by default electric vehicles. So they have to, they're going to, like, if, if you have a fleet of vehicles, let's say Uber or whatever, they're going to impose rules of saying they have to be electric cars. But interestingly enough, even that's not good enough for these people because now they're complaining that the tires, when you drive your car, um, little pieces of, um, of rubber uh, break off from your tire, you know, because it, it wears away, that's causing pollution. Anything having to do with your ability to drive a car, they're going to find an excuse that you can't do it because it's, it's hurting mother nature, it's hurting the planet, or it's hurting society in some way. And, but the other part of the, of the equation with automated vehicles is something that I'm very concerned about, which is that it's very hard for the government to put an imposition on you and say, you, Mark Claire, you can't drive on this street. But if they put the restriction on your car, Okay, and the car automatically won't go on that street. There's a lot more ability for them to control your life and to control your movement when it's an automated vehicle because now they're just controlling the technology and they're not controlling the person. And so I'm very, very concerned with as we get more and more into automated vehicles, I don't think they're coming as quickly as some people claim, but we're, we're looking you know, a few decades out. But when that happens, and it will happen eventually, I'm, I'm fairly sure, where the vast majority of vehicles on the roadway will be 
automated vehicles, they will then mandate that you can't drive your own car because you're a danger because you're a human being. So you make mistakes and the cars don't for the most part, or they make a lot less mistakes. So it's safer to have automated vehicles. So at some point, they will mandate that you are no longer allowed to drive a car, that it must be automated. And then they can really control you because all they have to do is control the technology or put a law in place that says, you know, this car can't drive on this ve- on this street. The car can only travel during these times of the of the uh, of, of the day. It, it, all sorts of can't drive in this part of the city. All sorts of things. And so I'm very very concerned about the control that the government can have over your life when everything becomes automated. It's it's actually kind of scary if you think about it. Sure is. And Jay, it is a it is a battle that is being waged on many fronts. And, and as you've touched upon in this interview, uh, it is uh, very much ideological and needs to, uh, I guess, the battles need to be waged on many fronts. So I'm glad you are here, at least in the uh, Los Angeles area and in California, uh, fighting for us. You can't do you can't do everything everywhere, but you can at least make a difference locally. And I, I think as you have shown uh, over the course of your work over the years here, you can make much more of an impact locally than if you were you know trying to go to the federal government and, and tackle their, you know, the way they you know, address highways and freeways and that sort of thing. You can have a lot more impact here locally. So I'm, I'm certainly glad to have you out here doing the work you're doing, Jay. Uh, before I let you go, why don't I just give you a second to let everybody know how they can reach out to you if they're interested in your work and uh, you know where they can find out more information about the various projects that you're working on and, and all this uh, traffic and car-related tyranny that we're fighting out here. <laughs> that's actually a good way to, that's a, that's a good way to characterize it. Um, so uh, my website, it hasn't been updated in a while. I'm, I've been working on all these projects and running for office, so, so it's a little lacking, but you can still reach me through the website. Uh, and see some of the historical stuff that I've done, which is um, uh, saferstreetsla.org. So it's um, S's and Sam, safer streets is plural, and LA for Los Angeles.org. So saferstreetsla.org. Um, there's a, a, a contact form. People can, people can get in touch with me. Or, um, and, um, and that's probably the best way that people can get in touch with me. I also want to give a shout out to, um, if you Google uh, Keep LA Moving, um, that will keep you informed on a lot of this road diet stuff. So, uh, so check out their website as well. We do a lot of work. Check out the National Motorist Association. Just Google National Motorist Association. You can find them. They have a lot of really good information about freedom of movement and, and your ability and your rights uh, driving a vehicle. So these are all good sources. And, um, and get involved. That's, that's really the thing. Reach out to us. Reach out to one of the organizations and get involved because you really can make a difference. I am proof of this. Um, and, and so many other uh, people who are working in this area and trying to prevent the overreach of government. This is, this is not a lost cause. You really, really can make a difference. If you care about freedom, if you care about the ability to live your life the way that you want to live your life, then you can make a difference and you can actually push back against this. And so uh, I would encourage everybody who is listening to this and, and you know, send this podcast to your friends and let them hear about this and let them know what's going on. Because again, I can't overstate the fact that if we do nothing, they will simply continue to overreach and overreach. And pretty soon, you're not going to have any freedoms left at all. And it's going to be too late. Hi, Jay Bieber. Thanks once again for coming back on. Uh, let's make it less than five years. Next yeah, year, let's do that. Come back. <laughs> thanks so much, man. Keep up the great work and keep on roaring. Roar. Thank you. <laughs> 
All right, kiddos, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jay Bieber. Quite honestly, one of the most effective liberty activists that I know. I mean, someone that has done so much work here locally in Los Angeles, bringing attention to issues that honestly do affect life or death. This stuff with traffic signals, the way they time the lights, not only are they annoying because you get these letters in the mail and they try to find you, yada, 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 but they are actually dangerous. They actually present a danger uh, a lot of the way these things are set up. Same thing with speed limits, uh, with the road diets. All this stuff actually causes human danger. It's, it's a lot more than just, oh, I don't like these rules. They're annoying. I mean, these are serious safety issues. And Jay Bieber has actually brought a ton of attention and made substantive changes on these issues here in Los Angeles County and in the state of California. So I do encourage you to look more into uh, the work of Jay Bieber, especially if you're out here in uh, California or in Los Angeles, but also just to use his work as a model in your own area. If you see these kind of problems developing in your own city, your own state, uh, hit up Jay, you know, check him out. Check out the model that he has basically set up that has been effective in bringing attention and bringing change on these issues. And speaking of change, I don't know, something's in the air. I feel something in the air here in 2020. I feel like we're going to see a lot of changes. I don't know what those changes are, but I feel big things in store for the Liberty Movement, for this podcast, for the ideas of Liberty, for the shifting of consciousness, if you really are one of the people that, that gets into that kind of stuff. Call it a hunch, call it intuition, call it whatever you want, but we're happy to have all of you here on this journey with us. Of course, it's not just me here every single Monday on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. We've also got Brian McWilliams with his unique and ridiculous take on, on comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up for the week every single Friday with his hard-hitting and incredibly inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Three can't-miss shows, and they all come for the price of one, and that price is free. Just be sure to hit that subscribe button, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify. We are on Spotify as well, if you did not know that. There are so many ways to listen to the show. I can't possibly list them all, but if you know how to use the internet, you should be able to figure it out. Very important to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our great three shows here on the greatest libertarian variety show on earth, Lion's of liberty. And of course, if you just have to pay us money because you love us so much and you love the free market and you love liberty so much that you just can't breathe without sending us money, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash donate to find a list of ways that you can uh, send us via cryptocurrency. You can also uh, send us money directly via PayPal at paypal.me slash lionsofliberty. And of course, the best way is to join our Patreon, join the Lions of Liberty Pride by heading over to patreon.com slash liberty again for all of January, we are giving away free Roaring Twenties Lions of Liberty t-shirts to anyone who supports us on Patreon at $10 or higher or upgrades to that level, and we are giving a 30% discount to anyone that joins at $5 or higher. We are just giving this stuff away. Folks, that is all I've got for you today. Happy New Year once again. Thank you so much for starting your year right here on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, and until next time, friends, live long and live free.